On this week's On the Media, we continue our probe of the American frontier with a look at how the map of the U.S. we grew up with has never shown us our true selves. If you looked up at the end of 1945 and you saw a U.S. flag flying overhead, it was more likely that you were living in a colony or occupied zone than you were actually living on the U.S. mainland. And the origins of the American empire lie in the so-called Guano Islands in the Caribbean. I asked some historian friends, what do you think is the worst job in the 19th century to have? And I think I can now say with confidence, guano mining's the worst. America's holdings then expanded to include Samoa, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and elsewhere, despite the claims of many a U.S. president. We do not seek for ourselves one inch of territory in any place in the world. An exploration of empire after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Last April, Brooke embarked upon a journey to chart some key differences between America's founding notions of itself and reality. Last week, we re-aired part one of that series where the subject was the frontier, the official idea of frontier as the birthplace of rugged individualism versus the revisionist view of it as a safety valve facilitated by the state to divert the poor from waging war on the rich. Ceaseless expansion, that there is no problem caused by expansion that can't be solved by more expansion. Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, laid out in vivid detail how the nation's psyche and politics were forged in the shadow of that ever-advancing continental frontier. That is, until we hit the ocean. This week, we re-air part two, dismantling another American conceit that we are a republic, a union, if an imperfect one. Turns out, that was almost never so. We move into that history with Northwestern University history professor Daniel Immerwar, author of How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. He was launched on the book by a trip he took some years back to the Philippines. He was stunned by what he found. Streets with American names, people speaking American English. As an historian, he knew that the Philippines were once annexed by the United States, but realized that he hadn't, until that moment, truly understood what that meant. I realized that the United States that I was teaching a history of was a truncated version. It was the contiguous United States, what people in territories sometimes called the mainland. But that's not the whole country, and it's never been the whole country. That whole country is represented by what Imavar calls the logo map. You know, the lower 48, spanning from coast to coast, jutting out in the southeast with a protrusion for Florida and a smaller one for Texas. So that map the contiguous blob with oceans on either side and Canada in the north and Mexico in the south. That's only been the borders of the United States for three years of its history. (laughs) To see how we arrived at this point, we must journey back to the 19th century when the population boomed and our soil was dangerously depleted. Turns out nitrogen is the best remedy for pooped pasture and the best source happens to be poop of the avian variety. In the 19th century, 
that bird poop, guano, was called white gold because it was seen as so valuable as fertilizer for farms that, once they've converted to industrial farming, were losing a lot of their fertility. An acre of farmland that might formerly have grown 20 bushels of wheat was, by the mid and later 19th century, growing down to 10 bushels an acre. This was a serious crisis. You need lots of usable nitrogen. And there are whole islands basically made of this white gold. Islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean that don't get a lot of rain, but that do get a lot of visits from birds. And then they poop on the islands year after year after year, and it piles higher and higher, bakes in the sun, so that over centuries you're looking at an island that is basically made out of fecal matter. I asked some historian friends, what do you think is the worst job in the 19th century to have? And I think I can now say with confidence, guano mining's the worst. Because it's like coal mining with all the pulmonary damage that you might suffer, except you essentially have to be marooned on a rainless island where there's only the food the ships can bring with them, very little water supply, where people are suffering from all kinds of intestinal illnesses as a result. Guano entrepreneurs sell African-American men in Baltimore a story about the tropical lives that they'll be able to live, consorting with beautiful women, picking fruit, occasionally shoveling a little guano. But once the men step on that ship, their reality changes. Where else are you going to go? Right? That ship takes you to the guano islands, deposits you there. You're under the supervision of a white overseer. You just have to work, and they have to pay for their passage. So the second they arrive, they are in debt to their employers, and they have to shovel enough guano or blast it free from the island in order to pay for their return passage. These workers were abused horribly, left tied up in the sun if they violated an order, and then something happens. And to understand it, you have to understand the harsh regime of labor discipline on Navassa Island. Off the coast of Haiti. Yeah, this is an island that is full of black men who've been deceived. They're not very enthusiastic about backbreaking work in the scorching sun on a jagged island. It's not a shock to me that these men mutiny, gather some rocks, weapons, and some dynamite, and they stage a full-out riot, and they end up killing five of their white overseers. The papers all report it. Black men have butchered white men, and they're hauled back to Baltimore for a trial which becomes a milestone in America's legal history of imperialism. Ultimately, they win. But how? So it's kind of incredible. The African-American community in Baltimore rallies around them, and their legal team make this extraordinary argument, which is to say, Navassa Island isn't part of the United States. And because it's not part of the United States, federal law doesn't apply. And if federal law doesn't apply, how can you try these men in U.S. courts? They're outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. So what this legal team does is it challenges the constitutionality of the idea that the United States can expand overseas. So it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to decide, is the United States the kind of place that can expand overseas? And the court decides that, yes, it is constitutional, right and proper, that the United States should expand overseas. So this minor incident on a place that had seemed very remote from the perspective of the mainland suddenly lays the legal foundation for the United States' territorial empire. But also, doesn't this decision thereby declare that what happens there is subject to American law, and these companies that were mining the guano... We're also massively breaking the law. 
That's right. It cuts two ways. If these places are part of the United States, where do they go to appeal for justice, right? What are they supposed to do when they're being, as they are, clearly abused? Benjamin Harris concludes that, okay, yes, these places are indeed part of the United States, but that means that people working on them should have some appeal to all the institutions and courts of the United States. And he, as a result, takes this issue up and decides to commute the sentences so they're not sentenced to death, then they have to spend the rest of their lives at hard labor. Mm. It was the pursuit of guano that forced us as a nation to publicly acknowledge that we were going to expand beyond our manifestly destined borders into realms unknown. By 1898, most of America seems all in on this imperialism idea. Maps were redrawn and hung in classrooms across the country, maps that we certainly didn't grow up with, that showed us America in the world as it truly was. It's an extraordinary moment. In 1898 and 1899, the United States basically goes on a sort of imperial shopping spree. It fights a war with Spain, and as a result of that war, it takes the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico, and it briefly occupies Cuba. And at the same time, almost in a fit of enthusiasm, the United States also annexes Hawaii and American Samoa. And cartographers see their opportunity and start publishing these extraordinary new maps, new maps that show the U.S. mainland surrounded by boxes. So Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, American Samoa. Why these are so extraordinary, at least for me, is when I saw them, I thought, you know, I've never seen a map like that. I'd never seen a map of the United States that had Puerto Rico on it. I'd never seen a map of the United States that had that box for Guam. But this is a moment when a lot of people in the U.S. mainland are so proud of this new facet of the United States that they are eager to see it differently. I found books that have titles like The Greater United States, The Imperial Republic, the old way of referring to the country as the United States, the Republic, or the Union in the 19th century, those don't really work anymore because it's now transparently not, not a republic and not a union. This new polity, quite transparently, has not been created by the voluntary entry of all parts. The Philippines fights a bloody war of independence that we think racks up more bodies than the U.S. Civil War. I remember there was a time when the U.S. was referred to as Columbia in songs like Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean. Yeah, because Columbia was, in the way that we have the District of Columbia, Columbia was a literary name for the country. And what's striking about this is the literary name that we all have in our heads that really wasn't that often used in the 19th century. America. A lot of people in the 19th century understood that if you were speaking of America, you were speaking of the Americas, the whole region. That changes in 1898, partly out of this desire to find a new way to describe the country, a new shorthand for it, America. It's a vaguer, more expansive term. And the president who takes office after the war with Spain, Teddy Roosevelt, uses the word America in his inaugural address. And there's a two-week period where he uses it in different speeches 
more times than every past president has used it collectively in the entire history of the country. And ever since then, it's off to the races. Why was 1898 an imperial shopping spree? What was going on? The United States bonked into the Pacific. The census in 1890 had issued a report suggesting that the frontier was no more. And it inspired a few, such as Teddy Roosevelt, to try to make new frontiers, to find new places where the United States could restore its vigor. So explain the Philippines. It partly has to do with Teddy Roosevelt. He's the assistant secretary of the Navy. His boss leaves the office for an afternoon to visit an osteopath. And Roosevelt springs into action and orders the U.S. Asiatic fleet to prepare to invade Manila if the United States has a war with Spain. And his boss doesn't countermand the order, possibly fearing looking weak. And so when the United States does go to war with Spain, it engages the Spanish fleet, defeats it, and suddenly the United States has the Philippines on its hands. Not suddenly. Takes a while. Right. The actual conquest of the Philippines takes an enormous amount of time. Part of the reason the United States is in a good position vis-a-vis the Philippines is that the United States has allied itself with Filipino insurgents who've been fighting against Spanish colonialism for quite a long time. And they think that they're doing so in the name of liberating their colony. With the aid of the United States, they're able to conquer the archipelago. The United States ends the war by purchasing the Philippines from Spain, but then it has to deal with these Philippine insurgents and ends up fighting a long and excruciatingly bloody war The Philippine archipelago isn't restored to civilian rule until 1913. It was only recently surpassed by the Afghanistan War as the longest war in U.S. history. On what grounds did the U.S. go to war for the Philippines? Because the U.S. was still hesitant to say, we do this for the sake of empire. The U.S. was never quite as frank about this as, say, the British were. Well, this is really interesting and rare moment in U.S. history where the leaders of the country will start talking like the British. The reason that the United States needs to fight the Philippines and fight to retain the Philippines is in order to civilize and uplift Filipinos. The most famous poem justifying empire, Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden, is written as advice to the United States about what to do in the Philippines. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. Teddy Roosevelt receives an advance copy, but a lot of politicians are deeply enthusiastic about this notion that the United States could achieve its adulthood by becoming, like Britain, like France, a transparent and forthright empire that's taken on the white man's burden to uplift and to educate its colonial subjects. That's the rhetoric of the time. You quote Mark Twain, who had been as ardently imperialistic as Rudyard Kipling, but then reversed himself, quote, There must be two Americas, one that sets the captive free and one that takes a once captive's new freedom away from him, picks a quarrel with him with nothing to found it on, and then kills him to get his land. For that second America, he proposed adding a few words to the Declaration of Independence, governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed white men. That's right. 
Mark Twain and Kipling were friends, and initially, Mark Twain had been, as he described it, a red-hot imperialist. But as he saw the war in the Philippines start to unfold, he came to be one of the most withering critics of the war, just as vociferously anti-imperialist as Kipling was pro-imperialist. And for the rest of his life, he would chronicle with sarcasm, with outrage, everything that the United States was doing in the Philippines, the massacres, the tortures, the hypocrisy. Coming up, how the world's professed leading democracy learned to reconcile itself to imperial brutality. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. At the dawn of the last century, the arguments over imperialism didn't end with poets like Kipling and writers like Twain. There was a flash in time when it dominated politics and the press. In a world of shifting borders, how should and how would the adolescent United States, big-headed about its democratic values, grapple with the tensions inherent in capturing territory. Historian Daniel Imavar says that this vital debate blazed across America's consciousness like a comet, then vanished just as quickly, out of sight and out of mind. Presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan speaking out against imperialism in 1908. We do not want the Filipinos for citizens. They cannot, without danger to us, share in the government of our nation. And moreover, we cannot afford to add another race question to the race questions which we already have. Neither can we hold the Filipinos as subjects, even if we could benefit them by so doing. For such an inconsistency would paralyze our influence as the world's teacher in the science of government. The racial logic here is totally transparent. And interestingly, a lot of the anti-imperialism was a racist anti-imperialism. The objection to empire was that it would extend the borders of the United States in such a way that it would include more non-white people in the country. Even during our transcontinental land grab, Americans shied away from taking land that was populated by people who were not white. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. So the United States expands a lot as the borders go west, but was always operating a logic of the United States should seek to take land, land that would then be used for white settlers, but it should not seek to incorporate large non-white populations. So after the United States fights a war with Mexico in the 1840s, 
militarily, it could seize a lot of Mexico. But politicians debate how much of Mexico does the United States really seek to annex. The southern border of the United States was carefully drawn in order to give the United States as much of Mexico as it could get with as few Mexicans. <laughs> People of color cannot be trusted with the vote. That seems to be the uh, governing principle here. That's the operative logic, yes. And yet, didn't we, in the Navasa decision, that recognized that our off-the-mainland holdings were still subject to American law, mean that the people who lived there had constitutional rights? You might think so. And the Supreme Court has to figure out what to do with this newly shaped United States. And there are a series of contentious Supreme Court cases starting in 1901 called the Insular Cases. And ultimately what the court decides is that constitutional rights apply in the mainland United States, but they don't apply in Puerto Rico. And shockingly, this is still law today. You can have rights in Puerto Rico, but they're not guaranteed by the Constitution because Puerto Rico exists in an extra-constitutional zone. That's one reason also why if you're born in American Samoa, you're not a U.S. citizen. You're born in the United States, but you're not born in the United States that's covered by the Constitution. The 14th Amendment doesn't apply to you, and therefore you're a U.S. national. But you're not a citizen. That's right. And the history of the United States' colonial empire is the history of a lot of people who are U.S. nationals and either are not U.S. citizens, have to push to become U.S. citizens, and even when they receive that citizenship— for example, Puerto Ricans have been citizens since 1917, the citizenship that they receive is statutory, i.e., it's provided by law, not by the Constitution, which also suggests that it can be taken away. One of the most clarifying things that you do in your book is to describe the trilemma that placed the central ideas of what the United States is in conflict with each other when confronted with its imperialist role. That's right. In the late 1890s, when many people in the United States are contemplating the future of the country, they realize that they can have an empire, they can have a country that's ruled by white people, and they can have a country that has representative government, but they can't get all three of them. Why not? Well, because think about it, because now the United States includes large non-white populations. So if the United States is going to continue to be Republican... Filipinos should have some kind of representative government and should have some kind of voice in the federal government of the United States. Those are the principles of republicanism. They're taxed. They should be represented. That seemed like it was a founding and core principle of the country. But there are a lot of anti-imperialists, including William Jennings Bryan, who worry about what happens to the United States if suddenly non-white people have political power. Some people try to solve this one way by allowing the expansion of the United States, but by rejecting its Republican principles. That's how Teddy Roosevelt thinks the United States should grow. It should have Republicanism for the mainland, but not for the entire country. Others, like William Jennings Bryan, seek to resolve this by not having empire, by limiting the growth of the country so that it doesn't have the problem of large non-white populations who otherwise might need political representation. And there's a really loud debate about this. And it's in some ways a tragic debate because those are usually the two positions you hear. The United States should abandon republicanism or the United States should limit itself to its contiguous borders. What you don't hear in the mainland debate is the third option. The United States should jettison white supremacy. 
They never considered taking white supremacy off the table. And yet they managed to reconcile these three incompatible ideas. And largely this happens by not talking a lot about the territories. So if you can brush it under the rug, the United States can still present itself to itself and to others as a republic, as a distinctive and exceptional world power without being an empire. The maps of greater America start to go away. Literally, you can see the boxes erased. If you look at textbooks that are published by 1920, it is really hard to find a map that shows any part of the United States beyond the mainland. And in terms of press coverage, let's talk about the invisibility of the people that the U.S. had come to rule. First, statistically. So the census is the statistical self-portrait of the nation. And if you look at the census from 1910, from 1920, from 1930, the first page in the population report will say, this is the population of the United States, and here is the population of its possession. But everything after that in the census, how rural or urban is the population, how long do people live, what kind of jobs do they have, all these ways in which the United States seeks to understand itself, those calculations are implicitly just about the mainland. And the argument is that people who live in the territories are just too different to be included in the calculation. So essentially they are relegated to the shadows. So they're invisible in our numbers, more or less. And they're also invisible in American popular culture. I was struck by your discussion of the films about the long march in Bataan. That's right. So one of the more dramatic events in World War II is the Japanese conquest of the Philippines. And this becomes the single bloodiest thing ever to happen on U.S. soil. World War II in the Philippines ultimately kills 1.5 million people, about 1 million of whom are Filipinos, are U.S. nationals. That's two civil wars. And there is very little registering of that on the mainland during the war. And frankly, there's very little registering of that now. It's not the kind of thing you find in textbooks. During the war, the thing that you see most about on the mainland is these wars about a fight in the Bataan Peninsula, where Filipino soldiers and soldiers from the mainland were making a last-ditch defense of the Philippines against Japan right before the archipelago got occupied and conquered. But what's so interesting about these films is that they focus with laser-like intensity on the white soldiers. Our club on Bataan took another rap on the chin last night. So the tragedy of the loss of the United States' largest colony, a tragedy that will lead to the single bloodiest thing that ever happens in U.S. history, this is entirely understood as something that happens to characters who are played like people like John Wayne. By then, the Air Force will have won the war, I suppose. Only where is the Air Force? The Filipino presence is almost completely erased from the reception of World War II, even when it's taking place in the Philippines. Obviously, if people are viewed as lesser and if they are invisible, they're more vulnerable. Tell me the story of Cornelius Rhodes, who was sent by the Rockefeller Institute to Puerto Rico to study anemia. Yeah, Cornelius Rhodes, Harvard-trained doctor, arrives in Puerto Rico in the 30s, and he regards Puerto Rico as a sort of island-sized laboratory. So here's what we know. First of all, he intentionally 
refuses to treat some of his patients just to see what will happen. He also seeks to induce diseases in others by restricting their diets. He describes some of them to his colleagues as experimental animals. He sits down and he writes to a colleague in Boston, one of the most extraordinary letters that I've read in U.S. history, and he says, I am here in Puerto Rico. It's beautiful, except for the Puerto Ricans. They are beyond doubt the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate and thievish race of men ever inhabiting this sphere. It makes you sick to inhabit the same island with them. They're even lower than Italians. This island would be great if something could be done to exterminate the population. I have done my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight and transplanting cancer into several more. The latter has not resulted in any fatalities so far. The matter of consideration for the patient's welfare plays no role here. He leaves the letter out, and it's discovered by the Puerto Rican staff. It seems to confirm all of the fears that Puerto Ricans have about mainlanders, and it becomes a scandal on the island. And this letter helps to fuel the nationalist movement of Pedro Albizu Campos. That's right. There's already a small nationalist movement in the 1920s, Pedro Albizu Campos is at the head of it. But in the 1930s, economic depression and then the issue of this letter turn it into a major force in Puerto Rican politics. And Albizu passes this letter around to anyone who will listen. He sends it to the Vatican. The appointed colonial governor, who's a mainlander, describes it as a confession of murder. So there's an investigation. And how that investigation plays out is really telling. First of all, Rhodes just leaves. And there's an investigation without him. And Rhodes' defenders say a few contradictory things. He was drunk. He was joking. He was angry. But the point is that he didn't actually kill eight people. So uh, the government, which is staffed by appointed mainlanders, runs an investigation, finds another letter that is, as the governor sees it, worse than the first, which is hard to imagine. But we don't know what that letter says because the government suppresses it, destroys it, and decides that Cornelius Rhodes was crazy and intemperate, but that he didn't actually kill people. So maybe he was intemperate, maybe he was a little out of his mind. He paid the consequences by being appointed the vice president of the New York Academy of Medicine and in the Army during World War II, chief medical officer in the Chemical Warfare Service. Yeah, and he goes on to have this illustrious career in medicine and basically suffers no consequences. But then in the Army, in the Chemical Warfare Service, he gets another go. Meaning he gets to use people as experimental animals again. Exactly right. The United States government is seeking to develop chemical weapons in case World War II becomes a gas war, which it never really does. And overall, some 60,000 people are tested on. And so sometimes that looks like having a mustard agent applied to your skin to see what kinds of blistering happen. Sometimes it's men are put in gas chambers with gas masks and are gassed to see how well their gas masks hold up. <laughs> the largest scale tests are these tests on this island that the United States seizes off of Panama. After a survey of the Southwest Pacific Theater and the Caribbean area, San Jose Island in the Perlis Group was selected as the test ground since the climate and flora are similar to that which has been found in the Southwest Pacific. And it uses those to stage field tests. Large groups of men are asked to sort of stage mock battles. And while they're doing this, planes fly over and gas them from the air. And then the question is, how well did the men hold up? 
And where did these soldiers come from? Who are they? The government is unwilling to send continental troops to be used as test subjects in San Jose Island in this way. So Puerto Rican troops come. <laughs> Many of them don't speak good English. They don't really understand what's happening. The men who are gassed, 60,000 men who are gassed, they experience long-standing effects, many of them, uh, emphysema, scarring, lung damage. These men were also supposed to be doing this secretly. And it only really came out in the 90s just how many of its own people, and you know, a good number of them Puerto Ricans, the United States had tested chemical weapons on. So Cornelius Rhodes becomes the head of the Sloan Kettering Institute and one of the forefathers of chemotherapy. This is a supremely surreal twist. Some of the mustard agents that work as poison gases also work selectively in fighting certain kinds of cancers. But a number of doctors figure that out during the war. They put a pin in it and they say, after the war, let's check this out. And so the government makes available its stock of surplus chemical weapons. Cornelius Rose is in charge of deciding which hospitals get it. He gives it to three hospitals, and a good bunch of it goes to his own hospital. And then he has the Sloan Kettering Institute, of which he's the head. And then he has, for the rest of his career, this incredible chance. A hospital that is full of dying cancer patients who will submit to experimental treatments. And he just goes for it and just tests chemical after chemical after chemical. And in doing so, becomes one of the forefathers of chemotherapy. Dr. Cornelius P. Rhodes of the Memorial Hospital in New York. He's on the cover of Time magazine, able to cultivate this image of himself as a cancer fighter without anyone really acknowledging that he's had this back history in Puerto Rico. Most people didn't know the informational segregation is so complete. Yeah, after Rhodes dies, there's an award that's given out by the American Association of Cancer Research in his honor for promising young cancer researchers. And this award is given for over 20 years before anyone who's involved, who's in the medical community and has a voice in that way, can say, you might want to rethink the name of this award. Because powerful people in the United States, not just politicians, doctors too, have basically been able to think of their country as a contiguous blob and haven't really had to grapple with the parts of U.S. history that have taken place in the territories. Coming up... Why understanding America's history of empire is vital for making sense of everything from bin Laden to the Beatles. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We conclude our hour with historian Daniel Immervar by looking at the hidden ways empire has changed our history, and more importantly, for our purposes, our view of our history. Because that view enables us to look past human rights violations committed on our own soil. Today we have military bases where American law doesn't apply. The reason we have Guantanamo is that this was set up to be above the law. It's extrajudicial. 
former Virginia Congressman Jim Moran. The rules don't apply. And the rest of the world looks at this, and it undermines our credibility and our security as a nation. We have people born on American territory who aren't legally citizens. The people of American Samoa are considered U.S. nationals. You're born owing allegiance to the United States, but you're not a citizen. America doesn't owe its allegiance back. And of course, this. President Trump tweeting, the people of Puerto Rico are great, but the politicians are incompetent or corrupt. Their government can't do anything right. Even during the height of American empire, even during World War II, even among soldiers fighting in U.S. territories, there was confusion about what exactly the status of those territories was. From the United States of America, Uncle Sam presents... In your book, you recount the story of a young Filipino boy, Oscar, who encounters a G.I. coming down the street, handing out cigarettes and Hershey bars. Speaking slowly, the G.I. asks the boy's name, and when he replies easily in English, the soldier was startled, and he said, How'd you learn American? Yeah, that story slays me, because you have to think of it from the perspective of the soldier first. He's crossed the Pacific, he's been given maps, he's been told where to go, whom to shoot. He's arrived in the Philippines, he's seen some of the bloodiest fighting of the war, and he meets this kid, and when the kid speaks in English, he's totally confused why this kid should speak in English. When Oscar explains, oh, the reason I speak English is that after the Philippines became a U.S. colony, you guys sent a bunch of teachers and we all learned to speak English. The soldier just looks at him and says, oh, I didn't realize that the Philippines was a U.S. colony. He doesn't actually realize that he's fighting on U.S. soil. We usually think of the war as catapulting the United States into the position of global leadership with a larger military, a more bustling economy than anywhere else. Actually, the war did something else, too. It gave the United States a lot of territory, so much territory that there were more people living in its colonies and occupied zones, like Japan, than were actually living in the States. If you looked up at the end of 1945 and you saw a U.S. flag flying overhead, it was more likely that you were living in a colony or occupied zone than you were actually living on the U.S. mainland. Truman saying, We do not seek for ourselves one inch of territory in any place in the world. FDR said it. Everyone said it. But people are like, we're going to keep Micronesia, right? <laughs> I mean, suddenly our borders are malleable. It's a moment when the United States has the ability to decide what its territorial destiny will be. It could take a lot of that territory. It could convert its occupations into annexations if it wanted to. And when Truman says the thing that so many past presidents had said, we covet no territory, there's a scandal about that. The State Department complains, the military complains, the public complains. Are you really saying that we're going to give up all the land that we fought so hard to get, the places where we've planted our flag? And they're particularly concerned about Micronesia, which is a sort of buffer zone between Japan and the western parts of the United States, including Hawaii. That's where a lot of the bloody fighting had happened in World War II. And the idea of the United States surrendering this strategically valuable space, that's hard for a lot of people to countenance. And in fact, Truman amends his statement. Outside the right to establish necessary bases for our own protection, we look for nothing. We're going to keep what we need to preserve our security. In that moment, right after World War II, when the United States has so many options territorially, 
the end of World War II brings a worldwide revolt centered in Asia against empire. Formerly colonized people have often seen their empires dislodged, often by Japan. They have access to arms. They've heard the idealistic speeches of FDR that this war is not a war for empire, this is a war for liberation, which produces a sense of shame, which makes it a lot harder for powerful countries to insist that empire is right and proper, and that's just how civilization goes, without fearing the kind of real on-the-ground and possibly violent resistance that they'll face in the colonies. The cost of colonialism has gone up. So that's one of the trends. The other one is that there are new ways to project power worldwide without controlling vast swaths of territory. A lot of these are technological. We can now produce a kind of nitrogen-based fertilizer that replaces guano. We needed rubber, and we developed fake rubber. We got plastic. And then basically all we really needed were military bases. That's exactly right. So on the one hand, the United States figures out how to generate synthetic substitutes for a lot of things that it formerly depended on colonies for. Rubber is a really good example. At the start of the war, the United States has a rubber crisis. Well, Charlie, this is one of the last rubber tracks we'll get. That's right. If we don't get rubber, we'll have to stop making good tanks. And the reason it has a rubber crisis is that Japan has seized a number of European and U.S. colonies in Southeast Asia in rich rubber-growing lands. And it looks to a lot of people like the U.S. economy is just going to fall flat on its face because you can't fight a war, it turns out, without rubber. What happens, and this is a surprise to a number of people who live through this and are watching it, is that the United States figures out how to make rubber, not from rubber plantations, but from petroleum, from oil, of which it has a great deal. And so suddenly, it's done a sort of colonies for chemistry swap, that it allows it to no longer depend for strategic reasons on tropical colonies. Rubber's one example. Plastic, which is also honed during the war, replaces any number of tropical products and allows the United States to sort of be immune to the desire to colonize large places so that it can control for strategic reasons their economies. We got radio to facilitate communications. It used to be the case that if you wanted to send a secure message from one part of the planet to another, you had to send it through a wire. And if you wanted that to be secure from sabotage, interruption, or espionage, you had to control all of the territory along that wire. And so the British Empire was obsessed with getting a large telegraphic network that went only through British-controlled territories hmm. so its adversaries couldn't snip its cables or listen in. But the world of radio brings something different. With radio, you can just control one transceiver in one spot, another in another spot, and beam the message from one to another. Now, people can still listen in, but if you get really good at encrypting your messages, you can solve that problem as well. A similar thing happens in transportation, as you see a world that goes from surface-hugging transportation, such as steamships, cars, trucks, and railroads, to a world where, ultimately, if you need to get something from point A to point B, and you don't control the territory in between, you can transport it by plane. The United States gets really good at using plane and radio, and it figures out that ultimately when push comes to shove, what it really needs is just a series of well-situated points all across the planet. 
That's what you call a pointillist empire, which still endures today. Yeah, it's important to recognize that although the United States has distanced itself from colonialism, it no longer has the Philippines, Hawaii, and Alaska have become states. Puerto Rico underwent a constitutional change, although it's still very much a U.S. territory. But from a strategic perspective, that's not the core of the U.S. empire today. What the United States has is hundreds of overseas bases, places where it can land, places where it can detain people, places where it can repair, and places where it can store weapons. And that is really the face of power today for the United States. If you took all U.S. overseas territory today and mashed it all together, you would have a land area that's less than the size of Connecticut. They may be small, but oh boy, are they important. A lot of history turns on those places and a lot of culture a lot of uh, Americans may not know this country's colonial history, but people in Puerto Rico do, people in the Philippines do, and so do people who live near those bases all over the world. So one really good example is the city of Liverpool. Before World War II, it hadn't been a particularly culturally inventive city. And then after the war, suddenly it lights up like a Christmas tree. And there's just band after band after band, and, you know, hundreds of them, and they're playing rock music. Suddenly, it's a sort of world center. And it's not all of Britain that's doing it. It's particularly Liverpool. Liverpool has right outside of it the largest U.S. base in all of Europe. And as a result, Liverpool is this sort of borderlands between this outpost of the United States and a still very much impoverished and war-torn Europe. And young people from Liverpool and from the area recognize that the men on the base are a great source of cash. And at the same time, they're receiving records from them. They're getting musical instruments from them. So it's not an accident that the Beatles come from Liverpool. Liverpool is the sort of contact zone between the United States and Western Europe. It isn't all sunny. In Japan, there's a deep sense of resentment. Riots every 10 years or so. Two Japanese ministers forced to resign because they deferred to the U.S. in matters related to the base. And then the Saudi Arabian bases, one could say that they had a role to play in 9-11. That's right. Often in areas where bases are stationed, people are drawn into them because they're sources of income, but they often find themselves resenting the bases, understandably. And you can see that so well in Saudi Arabia. So after the war, the United States establishes a military base in a place that had already been a sort of company town for a set of oil companies, Dharan. And it has to build up this base. It draws on a lot of local laborers to do so. One guy who's been working on this base for a while is a Yemeni bricklayer named Mohammed, and he's really good. And the people he's working for are very encouraging of him. And he starts his own firm and starts to get a lot of contracts. The firm is called Mohammed and Abdullah, Sons of Awad bin Laden. The guy who builds this base and who builds some other U.S. bases is Osama bin Laden's father. And Osama bin Laden grows up around U.S. bases in the Middle East, U.S.-sponsored construction projects in the Middle East. And on the one hand... He's part of this. That's where his money comes from. He gets really into construction. He's a construction guy. On the other hand, he gets deeply resentful and regards it as a form of imperialism. And it's this basing issue, particularly as the United States 
puts more troops in a formerly closed base in the 1990s that sets Osama bin Laden on his jihad against the United States. It's the issue of U.S. troops being stationed in Saudi Arabia, the land of Mecca and Medina, turning, as Osama bin Laden regards it, turning Saudi Arabia into a U.S. colony. That's his main source of complaint about the United States. How do we know that? The first thing that we know Osama bin Laden did is a bombing at that base. An explosion occurred this afternoon at the United States military housing complex near Dharan, Saudi Arabia. Precisely the base that his father helped to build, and that bombing is times, so it is the eighth anniversary of the stationing of U.S. troops there. He's communicating through the date exactly the thing that he is protesting. The explosion appears to be the work of terrorists. And if that is the case, like all Americans, I am outraged by it. The cowards who committed this murderous act must not go unpunished. I think that the United States has to get right on empire. For too long, it's been so easy from the mainland to not think about the overseas parts of the United States, despite the fact that mainlanders have been consistently affected by them. The overseas parts of the United States have too often been sacrifice zones, places where the full cost is paid for decisions made in Washington, World War II in the Philippines. That's where most U.S. nationals die in World War II, and many of them die from the U.S. military itself, which bombs and shells its own cities as it's trying to dislodge the Japanese. My point is not that military strategy was wrong, but my point is that it was made in a kind of bubble without any real reckoning of who it is that lives in the United States. And I think that can't keep going on. Daniel, thank you so much. Brooke, it's been a pleasure. Daniel Immervar is a historian at Northwestern University and author of How to Hide an Empire, a history of the greater United States. Bird poop. Bird poop. Birdie, birdie, birdie. Poop, poop, poop. Bird turd. Turd from a bird. Turdy, turdy, turdy. Birdie, birdie, birdie. Tweet, 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 tweet goes the birdie. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, John Hanrahan, and Asta Chattervedi. Leah Fetter, however, did the heavy lifting. We had more help from Xandra Ellen and Sharina Ong, and our show was edited by me and Kat. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Big thanks to WNYC archivist Andy Lancet. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.